throughout the year, I uh, will frequently go um, on trips places, you know. Um, I mean, this is the most travelingest congregation I've ever seen, so a lot of people can relate to this. But uh, there, there are different things that I'll go to seminars or, you know, continuing education events, uh, you know, the uh, denominational conference, things like that. And wherever it is, if, if I can drive there instead of fly, I'm going to do that. You know, I, I really would prefer to drive. And one of the reasons why is just simply because um, I, it gives me an opportunity to listen to books on CD, listen to seminars, listen to speakers, listen even to Garrison Keillor, you know, as he tells his folksy stories and, and listen to the kind of wit that he's got. Anyway, have you heard of Garrison Keillor? I mean, you're familiar with Garrison Keillor? Okay. Uh, and, and some of his stories, okay, some of you are. Um, anyway, Garrison Keillor is uh, kind of like the modern-day Mark Twain, and he uh, talks about life in middle America, small-town, uh, rural, rural middle America by, by these made-up stories about this fictitious place in northern Minnesota called Lake Wobegon. And one of my favorite stories that he tells is about Florian and Myrtle Krebsbach, uh, they're a married couple, elderly, and um, live in Lake Wobegon, of course. And one day, or one period of time, Myrtle had symptoms. And she went to the various doctors that were in the Lake Wobegon area, but all of them told her the same thing. There's nothing wrong. So she decided, no, 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 there's something wrong. I'm going down to Minneapolis which was a long ways away. They never go to Minneapolis because that means driving on the interstate. And for Myrtle's husband, Florian, well, he hardly ever takes the car out at all. His car is a 1966, and it's got 40,000 miles on it. Okay, so he hardly ever goes anywhere. But now they had to go down to Minneapolis for this doctor's appointment. And they were two old people who were scared out of their wits on the freeway driving down to Minneapolis, Myrtle clutching her purse as though someone would come along and steal it, and Florian driving no faster than 45 miles an hour with the semis going woof, you know, right by him, and they were scared, and finally Florian said to his wife, if it were up to me, I would just turn right around and go back home. Well, Myrtle was in the mood for him to say something wrong, and that was something wrong. So she said to him, of course you would. You don't care about me. You don't care whether I'm here or not. You don't care whether I'm living or dead. And he said to her, I do care if you died. And she said, oh, yeah? Well, how much do you care? And Florian thought about it because he's not very good at theoretical questions. And he thought about it a little, a little bit too long, so Myrtle jumped in and said, well, there, I guess that's my answer. You didn't answer, so I guess you don't care. You don't care whether I live or die. You don't care whether I'm here or not. Which is unfortunate that that was the conversation that they had right before they went to the truck stop. Because after stopping at the truck stop, Florian drove away without Myrtle. Now, it was his idea to stop. 
He thought that maybe if we just have a little bit of coffee, it can settle us down a little bit. And then they had the pie and they came out to the car and they both got in the car and Florian thought to himself, hey, I better go to the men's room before we head out. So he went to the men's room, leaving Myrtle in the car. Well, while Florian was in the men's room, Myrtle thought to herself, you know, I better go to the, to the ladies' lavatory too before we leave. So she got up. She went into the ladies' lavatory. Florian came back out from the men's room, hopped into the driver's side, turned on the car, checked the side view mirrors, and merged onto the freeway and drove off. And it might you know, sound surprising that he would not check to see that his wife was seated next to him, but he was lost in thought. He was thinking all about how much he would truly miss Myrtle if she were gone. He would have to wander around that big house by himself. In the morning, he would read the newspaper and he'd want to share something with somebody and turn to Myrtle and she wouldn't be there. Well, just then he was turning to Myrtle to tell her how much he would miss her if she was gone and she was gone. You could have knocked him over with a stick. He thought to himself, is she in the back seat? He checked in the back seat. No, she's not in the back seat. Could she possibly have jumped out the, the, the window? No, they were on the freeway. She wouldn't jump out the window. And then he remembered the truck stop. He must have left her back in the truck stop. But by now he had driven 20 miles. So he took his foot off the accelerator and he slowed to a stop on the freeway along the side there and he realized, I've got to turn around. So he went off the next exit to try to turn around, but he couldn't turn around, so he started driving down that road and he realized he's no longer on the freeway and he had no idea where he was. He didn't recognize anything. Everything looked strange and different. He stopped for directions, but he couldn't follow the directions. Finally, hours later, which gave him, by the way, plenty of time to rehearse his speech when he finally did connect up with Myrtle once again. He made it back to the truck stop, but she wasn't there. So he talked to the waitress in the restaurant and said, "Uh, Do you remember that woman that I was with earlier today? Have you seen her? And she said to him, The one in the blue dress. Well, he couldn't remember for the life of himself what color the dress was that she was wearing. And and, uh, he couldn't even remember exactly how to describe her except mad. And she said, oh, that one. Yes, her son stopped two hours ago to pick her up. And he thought to himself, oh, no, now I've got to deal with Carl, too. Not just Myrtle. So he got in the car and drove back to Lake Wobegon. And when he pulled up to his house, he could see Carl's pickup truck in the driveway, and he couldn't imagine going in there and dealing with both Carl and Myrtle at the same time. So he drove down the road, and he sat there at the end of the road, and he listened to the radio until sunset. And he thought to himself, well, what if Roger Hedlund, my neighbor here, were to look out and see me sitting here in my car? I mean, it kind of stands out in the middle of the country, one car sitting there on the road where it's not supposed to be. What would I say to him? And he thought to himself, well, I'll just tell Roger that I'm listening to the Lutheran station on the radio because, after all, Roger was Lutheran and he would like that. And it could have been the Lutheran station. After all, the preacher was talking about sinners who had lost their way. And he began to think that maybe, just maybe, this preacher was talking just to him, you know, because he was a sinner who had lost his way. And uh, then the preacher began to talk about forgiveness, and he thought, you know, yeah, it's easy for you to say you've never left your wife at a truck stop. And then at the end of the program, a singer began to sing. 
softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling, calling to you and to me, calling, O sinner, come home. And he got the idea. Not just because of the song, but because he had stopped at the sidetrack tap on the way into town and had a beer and a bump because it had been a rough day and it was starting to back up. He needed to do something about it. So he headed home. And there as he was headed home, he could see Carl's pickup truck back out of the driveway and head down the road. So he pulled into the driveway where Carl's truck sat stopped the car, shut it off, left the door open a bit because he thought he might have to make a quick escape. He went up to the house, and he could smell supper cooking, fresh fish fillets. And there was Myrtle, standing with her back to him, mixing something by the stove. He stepped in and stood by the refrigerator and cleared his throat. Myrtle turned around, and when she saw him, She dropped her spoon and came running toward him and said, Oh, thank God, I was so scared. Oh, Daddy, she said, don't ever leave me again. I'm sorry I said what I said to make you so angry. Don't ever leave me again like that. He was going to tell her that he hadn't left her, that he had forgotten her, until it began to dawn on him that it would be better to leave someone to be dumb out of passion than just to simply be dumb and forget her there. So he didn't tell her. He was so amazed that after 47 years of marriage that she would think that he could possibly be capable of such a thing. Well, she got up in the morning and there were no more symptoms. No bump on the back of her head, no hairs in her comb, no blood on her toothbrush. And she said to her husband, I feel terrific. So do I, he said. And she said, do you think we should call down to that clinic and let them know we're not coming? And he said, no. No, I I think they know by now. It's good to be needed. It's good to be missed when we're gone. Significant to somebody which might be a great definition of love between two people. But people spend their lives, I think, writing a life resume out of fear of insignificance. I've seen people who are deeply loved, deeply loved by another, who give up on their spouse or their family or their church that loves them deeply because they think that significance, real significance, lies somewhere out there instead of with the one by their side or the one who is asleep next to them. True significance actually can be found when you are not seeking it at all. But when you're showing it, demonstrating it to somebody else, that they are someone who is significant. In fact, it's tough to show anyone, including God, significance. And this is what we do here in worship. We show God's significance, that He is significant to us. It's tough to show anyone's significance if we are searching for significance in all the wrong places. So what is on your life's resume? Does your resume tell about your search for significance in all the wrong places? 
Or does it tell about one who knows how significant they are because they are a child of God? Last week was the Super Bowl, and the Philadelphia Eagles reached the highest achievement in sports, really, in the the entire sporting world, by winning the Super Bowl. And Nick Foles, the career backup quarterback, was the winning quarterback in the Super Bowl for the Philadelphia Eagles. After the game, he was interviewed to get his reaction to the day's events. I mean, a storybook kind of an of ending here. The first thing he said was this in this interview. He said, all glory to God. All glory to God. And then he talked about his wife and the significance that they have together. Nick Foles, Super Bowl hero, added two extremely significant things to his resume that day. The two things that are the highest honors you can possibly achieve in the NFL. He won the Super Bowl as the Super Bowl winning quarterback, and he was named the Super Bowl MVP. And yet, what he was saying in his postgame comments was that he knew significance long before he even played that first snap in the Super Bowl. The significance he finds in Jesus and the significance that he shares with his wife already made him someone significant long before that game was even played. Significance matters. Just ask King Solomon, the writer of the biblical book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 1, he says this, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, which sounds pretty significant. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. A significant study. So what's his response? What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. That other version says vanity. You know, it's kind of got different nuances of the same kind of a thing. Looking uh, at myself. Uh, and the meaninglessness of this kind of a resume. But, uh, you know, with, with King Solomon, you know, a lot of people are not going to read something like Ecclesiastes because uh, it can be kind of a real downer, really. They don't want to be reminded of the insignificance of life. So people construct a resume desperately to demonstrate how significant they really are. Just look at my kids. I must be significant. Just look at my job title. I must be significant. Just look at my house. I must be significant. Just look at my influence, my attempt at influence. I must be significant. Just look at my fill-in-the-blank. I must be significant. But at the end of that resume, Solomon, in all his wisdom, would write one word, meaningless That's not where significance is found. You are not defined by your kids. Praise Jesus for some of us, perhaps. As important as they are and as wonderful as they are, you are not defined by your job title, even though it's important to have a job. You are not defined by what you own or by where you live. You are not defined by your attempt at influence. You are not defined by the the things of this world. Yet that's how most people define themselves. And they wind up with a meaningless resume, a chasing after the wind. Enter Nicodemus.
John chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he was born again. Nicodemus, as it tells us here, is a Pharisee, member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and these were the guys who had exercised all kinds of influence in the lives of people who lived in Judea. The Romans had the military might. Herod, King Herod had the civil authority, but it was the Jewish ruling council made up of these religious leaders who had the hearts and the eternal hopes and dreams of the people. They liked to be seen, and they liked to be respected. Nicodemus came from this group of people of which Jesus said in Luke chapter 20, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. They like the respect and the honor of the crowd. That was where people like Nicodemus gained their significance. They held up their figurative resume for all to see and say, aren't I great? Aren't I significant? Now, at night, when he thinks that no one can see him do this, which could damage his reputation, his resume, Nicodemus goes to Jesus And he cites those things that he sees on Jesus' resume that he thinks gives Jesus significance. That Jesus is a teacher who's come from God and a miracle worker. But Jesus didn't bite on Nicodemus' attempt at flattery because Jesus knew that a person's significance isn't found in the things of this world. Significance is found when God is your Father. So Jesus said this, you must be born again. You must have such a significant change in your life. You must rewrite your resume in such a way that it reflects that you are a child of God. Now, when a child is born, I tell you what, leading up to the birth of a first child, I have yet to see anyone who's going to have that first child who is able to accurately tell how this child is going to change their life. Is that right? I mean, um, I look back at myself. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, I know what that's all about. Oh, whoa, 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 wait, nobody told me that. You know, uh, there's uh, no more freedom, but a whole lot more interesting at that point. But as, as, as much as that changes the lives of the parents, that is nothing compared to how the life of that child is changed. One minute, life is good. It's predictable. Things are warm and comfy. Nutrition comes down the tube. Swimming every day. And then all of a sudden, pain, stretching, light, cold. Everything's different. Nicodemus' significance, real significance, is like that. Everything is different be born again. A stunned Nicodemus asked the obvious question, 
How? How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. The answer to significance isn't where Nicodemus was looking for it in the flesh. The answer to significance is found in the spirit that can give birth to a new spirit, a new life, a new hope, a new purpose in your life. John says this in John chapter 1, that this all happens to all who received him, to those who believed in his name. It is to those people that he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, it would be great if this were just a once-and-done kind of a deal, but we live in a world that, that can uh, really uh, deceive us and, and drag us into writing a different kind of a resume entirely, which means that we need to be re- reborn again every day. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, it'd be great if we were all rebaptized every day. Now, he's not talking about literal baptism here. He's talking about this new start every single day, taking out your resume every single day and checking it and saying, okay, am I looking for significance in the wrong places? Or am I, does this reflect that I know that I'm a child of God? To re- be reborn, to rewrite that resume every single day. Now, you, as well as for me, you know, we all go through some challenging times. And for me, it might, might happen in, in the middle of the night, okay, when uh, something's going on, I don't have the kind of peace that I need to have to be able to sleep and things like that, and it makes it even more difficult because my wife, uh, you know, is sleeping away and I'm not, you know, it's pretty obvious, and then it dawns on me. I've been trying to please all the wrong people. I've been looking for significance in all the wrong places. And then the words that Jesus spoke can come to me from John chapter 3. The words that he spoke to Nicodemus. For God so loved, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it's in that that true significance is really found. And when you focus on the love of God and, and accept that love in it changes you. It rewrites your resume so that you can find that the best written resume is one written in God's hand by His love on the human soul, reflecting a life that's lived for God and, and a life that's lived for others. So we, as we bring this series to a close today, I want you to take a look at what it is that you've been striving for. What is it that you thought would make your life significant Look at what you've been writing on your resume. Would what is written there be called by Solomon meaningless? Then change your resume to one that shows this, that you are a child of God, deeply, deeply loved by him. A child of the king of the universe. You cannot get any more significant than that. And that's the thing is that you have significance right now You have the greatest significance you could possibly ever have. There's no reason to search for it out there. 
Now, these other kinds of things, they are great as long as you do not seek significance in them, but find your significance in Jesus instead. And then use that love, that significance, to demonstrate that these people in your life are significant too. That's a life worth living and a resume worth reading.